Thoughts, we move up the stack to think about web application delivery. How are web pages actually delivered to a client? What's the role of the client versus the role of the server these days? What do new protocols like HTTP2 and Speedy bring to the party? And then, from an infrastructure perspective, how do we make sure we're optimizing the performance and user experience? If the last thing you got excited about with HTTP was pipelining, stay tuned to catch up with the latest on application acceleration. At PacketPushers.net, you can find this and all of our Datanaut shows about infrastructure engineering or just search for Datanauts spelled like astronauts in your favorite podcatcher. You can follow us at Datanauts underscore show. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks, and with me is the misty-eyed Chris Wall at Chris Wall who sheds a tear whenever his user experience exceeds his expectations. And joining us on the Datanauts today is our very special guest, Lori McVitie. Lori, would you please introduce yourself to the Datanauts audience? Absolutely. Thank you, Ethan. I am currently the principal technical evangelist at F5 Networks, which means I know things and I write a lot. In the past, I've done a lot of other things. Basically, if technology (laughs) wanders into my office, I use it, beat it up, and then I throw it away because that's kind of what I do (laughs) and have done for a long time. So I'm really excited to be here Mostly because my background is development, so and I still do some development, and I'm also a network gearhead. So when you put these two things together, exciting things happen sometimes. Yes. Outnumbered, no. <laughs> I'll be over here. So, Laura, you said you write a lot, and uh, and you do write a lot, that you have a substantial amount of uh, writing that you do to the point that I'm like, seriously, she wrote that as well. It's like this constant stream of fairly in-depth and thoughtful articles that are like, Man, really, I got to bring up my game. Anyway, one of those articles that you wrote, Lori, is the inspiration for this podcast. Back in March on devcentral.f5.com, you wrote an article, How Apps and APIs Are Changing the App Acceleration Game. And for those of you listening, that is the background for what we're going to talk about on the show today. This caught my eye, Lori, because I've worked in a number of environments where I've supported that traditional web application, internet-facing, a lot of customers, and how do you improve that experience for them? How do you make sure that they're, as they use your uh, web, that it's uh, it's, it's a lovely experience, that things are going well for them and uh, have been right down in the depths of whether it's load balancing or reverse proxies or you know security scanning, you know making sure all the pieces and parts of that stack work well, and then you you started diving into this in this article, and we're going to take that article as our springboard and then go a little bit deeper. I think we need to start by level setting about app delivery, Lori. So in your article, you mentioned the three layers of an application the way you describe them. There was a presentation layer, a logic layer and then a data layer to an application. Since it's kind of important to our whole conversation, could you set up what those layers are? Sure. This concept goes back to development. When you develop an application, you generally think in terms of three different layers of that application. The presentation is what you would think. That's your UI, it's your interaction layer, it's your interface. It's where the user actually gets to see the application. The logic is everything that actually makes that work. It's adding two numbers. It's understanding that when the user clicked this button, this thing should happen, right? You should go and do X, Y, and Z. Go get some data or enter an order. It's the checkout process. It's some kind of logic that's executing within the context of that application, usually representing some sort of business task or or thing that needs to happen. The data layer is the data layer. This is supposed to be, and I, I say that supposed to be, a specific layer whose only purpose is to access data. That used to be muddled a little bit, but it's become more defined over the years simply because of the the changes in the way applications are being designed and developed and really scaled. It's become necessity. So the data layer could be APIs. It could just be libraries that are accessing a database. It could be, you know, another service somewhere that is just going and basically getting data and putting data into a data source somewhere. So those are the three layers that we think in as we're actually putting an application together. Okay, so presentation then, what it's actually looking like to me on the screen as I'm consuming this application, you know, how it's presented... You know, correct me if I'm wrong as I'm going along here as I try to summarize this. Okay. Logic is, you know, I got to make some decisions about what I'm going to be presenting. I've got to do some computations. I've got to, uh, you know, execute some code to make some decisions. And now 
This is what's going to be presented to you based on some action you took, a form you filled out. It's the processing of maybe user input or the situation that is presented as I'm trying to look at that data on the screen at the presentation layer. And then the data is actually the data that's making up this application. It's the boring stuff, the bits and bytes, but the most important stuff because it's actually displaying to me the most key information for this application. Yes. I, you summed up well. You didn't need me to do that. That was wonderful. Okay. No, that's good. That's good. It means, I'm, means I'm, I'm, I'm paying attention. The coffee I haven't drunk yet is kicking in anyway. Yeah, because in your world, there's seven layers, right? So it's like three. That's four less layers right. than your normal. <laughs> so we got the presentation logic and data layer. And then there's different ways through history that we have treated these three layers and which part of the client and server are responsible for which layer becomes interesting You know, for our conversation here. Now, in the article, Laura, you mentioned... Back in the day, we had the e-commerce era. Okay, so if back in the day we had the e-commerce era, what did that look like uh, in relation to the presentation logic and data layers? Back in the day, you know, in the early century. See, I like saying that. That's cool. <laughs> so back in the early aughts, e-commerce, the, the most of the applications were still primarily based on a client-server model that was common inside the enterprise, right? You had visual basic front ends that were talking to a database. And we kind of transported that to the web in that the server actually took care of most of the logic and the data. And the presentation was, was HTML, right? It was a thin layer of here's what it should look like. But the server actually took care of all of the logic and all of the data that was all handled on Apache and, and IIS. And... Yeah, yeah, you reminded me of the olden days back when I was actually a web server administrator and did some coding in PHP. And all the rendering happened server side and pretty much all that was getting sent up to the client was just fully formed HTML. Here's what you're going to display on the page is, uh, is this HTML code. I yes. remember um... – Learning how to code HTML by just stealing other people's code, which when you're in your, in your teenage years in high school, that's your budget. And I remember seeing this CGI bin thing and like, oh, how does that work? And that was the, that was the mystery of the internet back then. That's pretty much as far as I've advanced my knowledge of writing web type stuff. Everything else is like, I'm now dumbed down to WordPress and I'm fine with that. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a different time. Everything was being passed back and forth. Right. That was one of the, the reasons that so much technology had to be developed and came about was primarily because, you know, your browser, we were sitting there over what, you know, dial up connections. Remember exactly. that? You know? Yeah. And you got to get it on someone's web ring. You know, that's right. important. Oh, yeah. Every web ring you can, all those little <laughs> icons. Sign into my guest book. You know, it's, but that, yeah. was all, that was all little pieces of code that I had no clue what was, what was going on. <laughs> but, but, but to kind of reemphasize your point, it was all on the server side. Because I remember the web host was very aggressive about, okay, we're not going to let you do too many activities because it would overload the web server because nothing was happening in my Netscape browser, as an example. Oh, yeah. The transport over the network, right? That last mile was so slow. And the capacity on the server side was not what it is today. So it was like trickling data over the pipe, right? Just trying to shove all this HTML back and you could watch it draw, right? Line by line going, oh, look. <laughs> if you were really pedantic about it, you wanted to be super efficient with your HTML too. Really make those tags as uh, you know, as tight and neat as possible. And so using something like Microsoft Word to generate your HTML was like, what just happened? That's awful code. Oh, no, no, no. I will be hand coding my HTML. Thank you very much. Now, come on, Ethan. We all know that the correct way to do it is using blink tags on your GeoCities page. I, I, <laughs> oh, oh. I feel like we've covered all the nostalgia. We can move on yeah, to other. Okay, so this is the e-commerce era. Everything was happening on the server side. And we had, you know, we were coding for a different era, a different sort of a browser and a different sort of bandwidth profile across the network. So then... Lori, we moved to the Web 2.0 era. What did that look like? That was exciting. It was interactive, right? You could, you could actually refresh individual parts of a page, right? Like just this one little box. You could refresh it in real time. So it, it started to hook in and browsers started giving us access to the actual underlying mechanisms for talking to the server. So we could send out 
XML HTTP request to the server and say, hey, can you give me this data? And then it would come back and you could manipulate the HTML on the client side and change what it looked like. So we got more interactive. So we still had this big glob of data coming back, but we started moving some of the logic to the client to actually start making it more responsive. So it actually appeared to be loading faster and being very interactive, which people really liked. Right? You had all of these sites that had, you know, that's where we got chat from, oh, I can see if someone's online or not. It wasn't always completely up to date because we were still fighting capacity on the on the server side and less efficient protocols and pipes still weren't as fast as they are today, but it was better. And again, you said a lot of the responsibility moved to the client and that you were getting a bigger payload sent to the client and the client would then have a data set to work with. And as you put it, it would make the page appear to load faster in certain circumstances. You click on something and boom, something appears immediately. Well, really, because all the data had been fetched already and it was already just sitting there waiting for you to do something in the page or in the app that would cause that data that was already sitting in the background to appear. That was some of it, yes. And some of it was just the requests that we were making were for smaller chunks of information. So instead of getting the HTML for the whole page when you clicked on a button, it would just go grab a little bit of HTML and then the developer would dynamically shove it into the page and replace pieces of it, and it would look like it had refreshed, because it had, but the whole page was mostly the same. It was just that one piece that changed. So it gave the appearance of, of responsiveness by basically reducing how much traffic had to go back and forth between the client and the server. Like an incremental routing update. You don't need the whole table. Here's the changes. This is all you need. Just this little bit. That's exactly it, yes. Or just like modular components within it. I mean, I'm, that'll make sense. That'll make yeah. sense. You don't want to send the whole thing. It's like you don't want to scrape the entire thing just to update one little bit or, or a collection of bits. So that makes sense. Now, Laurie, we make the Web 2.0 error. What we just described here is something that sounds historical. But in fact, I think a lot of websites still operate this way. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah, a lot do. There's still a lot of e-commerce era sites out there. If you go out and look at sites like anything in the uh, miniature wargaming space, they sell the little, they're not little toy army men, but they're like lead and pewter, right? They're grown-up toys. But anyway, their sites, uh, sites are very still e-commerce era, right? Bunch of images. There's really no no kind of responsiveness. You still have to click and load a big page and you do these things. It's all It's all very old school. So big chunks of the web really are still first gen. And there's still a big chunk that are, you know, the second gen, the web 2.0 era just haven't updated yet. Well, then take us into the, to the modern era, what's current. And you describe that in this article as the API mobile era. Yes, this is fun and scary. If you're a developer who hasn't done anything since the web 2.0 era, because suddenly you realize that most of the logic is now on the client side and there's nothing but data left on the server side. These are the apps that are apps and web pages, if you will. They're really apps at this point that are they're built on frameworks like Angular, um, jQuery. Oh, Twitter's always escapes me for some reason. But they've, you know, these frameworks that you can use and it is really primarily all of your presentation and a great deal of logic is on the client side now. The back end is merely a set of API calls that are primarily responsible for doing nothing but returning data. Here's the data, and the, and the client's responsible just to take that data and make it look like something based on code that it's got uh, sitting locally. Yes, and the reason this works so well is that if on a a mobile device, if you're doing a native application, all of that framework is built in there and you just want to go get the, the data. So if you use that same model on the web, then you get to use the same APIs and you get consistency right on the back end and, and you don't have to support as much. So by moving all of that kind of presentation and logic in, in the browser, to the client, you get kind of parity with the mobile devices as well. And you get a consistency on the back end that's really advantageous for the organization. Yeah, I read a, a comic called Commit Strip once a week or so. And they had a lot of funny comics when this kind of became a little more mainstream. It's like, where's the back end? 
it, what the front end has a lot of the pieces of the back end. You know, it's like it's it's doing a lot of that. Ready service side components in the browser just kind of blew my mind for a bit. Although now it, it makes more sense because the API economy, I think, has become a little bit more mainstream, especially in our industry, you know, the infrastructure engineering realm. So the idea of this is what it's going to look like, and I just go grab the data to update the presentation you know, of the data in the browser it makes a lot more sense. It's certainly less heavy lifting on Ethan's network there, which uh, I guess that makes you happy. <laughs> well, it makes it faster and more efficient, right? And APIs are kind of taking over the infrastructure space as well, yes. right? The API is the new CLI. And that is how, right, we're going to automate and we're going to manage devices in the future, right? When we're in our flying cars in the data center getting around. When our hoverboards get here, we were promised. You know, this all reminds me that latency continues to be the enemy of user experience. You know, from where I sat or continue to sit, I suppose, all the progression and web content delivery is about making sure that everything pops up immediately. You know, we want everything now. But we're also trying to consume every drop of available bandwidth and client-server compute power to minimize that latency. So it all comes full circle, I suppose. What about you, Ethan? I was just struck that somehow I kind of missed the transition through these different eras. You know, a lot of the technologies that we talked about are like, oh, here's a new thing, and oh, here's a new thing that kind of popped up on my radar over the years, when really it was it's more like groups of new technologies that arrived to create these different eras. And I really like the way that Lori was able to compartmentalize uh, these eras in that way. It's really helpful because it points out where we are and just how powerful even low-end clients like phones really are when you can shift a lot of the responsibility over to them, to the client, to make that web page look like what it needs to look like at a given time. All right, the trip down Nostalgia Road was awesome, especially because I got to say CGI Ben for the first time in 20 years. Let's talk about optimization and realistically looking at the nostalgia road when you request a web page. There's a bunch of calls going back and forth for different objects, which obviously was inefficient, especially over dial up and, and slower broadband. I'm using air quote connections that cable and DSL offered in the back of the day. So how was this optimized? How are we actually able to make sure that we're retrieving the data in a more optimized fashion moving forward? Well, back in the day, we didn't care. Right. I mean, we had <laughs> dial up and we liked it and that was it. Right. Who did you complain to? I feel like whatever. You know? So, you know, once when we started trying to optimize this, HTTP was wasn't built for it. But, you know, we we basically manipulated the crap out of it in the browser by going, well, if you have 80 objects and I only have one connection, it's going to take a long time because it was synchronous. You sent a request, you waited for a reply, and you had to because the RFC said you must. And we know that must is like absolute rule you cannot violate, so they, so they say. So someone said, well, you know, if we just open more connections, we can get more stuff back. And so basically optimizing right those connections was more a case of we're just going to open more of them so that we can get things here faster. So And by things we're talking about – there's a page, there's all these inline objects in the page, you know, that graphics, let's say, and I'm just going to open up a new socket and do a unique HTTP get request for each of those things and suck them all back and build the page in parallel because that's, that's better. Right, right. Every single object, right? Images, scripts, anything that was basically, if you viewed source and you could see, you know, HTTP and here's your, your URI, if it had one of those, we could go get it. And we could use a separate connection. So, mm. you know, you could you basically spread out the load by opening more connections, doing it in parallel, pulling these things in a lot faster, it seemed. Unfortunately, that kind of had the negative effect of slowing things down because suddenly your browser was trying to open, you know, too many connections per page. And that's where those limits came in, right? For a long time, we were limited, and we still may be, right, eight connections per domain period. So that's all you could open. So eight, you got 80 objects. Okay. So you can do 10 on each, you know, you can do the math when that still wasn't fast enough on the server side. This is where infrastructure really got into the game in some ways is someone went, if we fake out the browser by pretending to be eight different domains, 
we can open eight times as many connections. So they started sharding domains. So all my images went to image.whatever.com right. and all my scripts to javascript.this.com. And we split them up. And so each domain could have eight connections. So if I had eight domains, right now I'm feeling like the guy that came from as I was going to St. Ives, right? How many each connection had, you know, this many objects? But you could really exponentially increase the number of connections by using infrastructure to shard those domains and just basically shoving data down, you know, 80 different pipes at the client. It's like a a web browser Ponzi scheme. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, we were limited by bandwidth back in the days. Now that we have more bandwidth, let's just open a bajillion connections. (laughs) Problem solved. I do remember, though, like when you'd load a page that was heavy with any kind of media and you'd watch like each thing load one at a time. It's like, I just want the text. Why are the ads so darn optimized? I get the ads immediately, but I just want the text. I don't get it for like a minute. I do remember those days. Uh, And I don't remember them more recently. Although ads always load the quickest uh, for some unknown reason. I was going to say, it's, it seems like if I'm on a mobile device, everything is an ad. And they're fast. They're there. Yeah, they're, they're yeah. lightning fast. But the little picture that I'm trying to grab is not. So hats off to you, mobile browser creator dudes and, and, <laughs> and ladies, because I don't know how they're doing that. Well, that's, I think that goes to, to CDNs. They make extensive use of CDNs. And really, that's the, another response that we saw, right? The rise of content delivery networks. Basically, caches in the cloud. That's what we could call them now because that's really what they were, right? They were positioned all over the globe and you could basically position your content there and it got it closer to the user, which meant it was going to load faster. And they had a lot more capacity, so they had more resources. And of course, fewer resources on a server means it's going to perform a little faster. So the use of a CDN for especially images back then was a real boon to performance because you could open those up and it would come down a lot faster. And it would also take the load off your infrastructure so that when your infrastructure was actually delivering the rest of the content, it moved a little bit faster as well. Yeah, I think it's worth teasing that apart further because you bring up caching and CDNs, not everyone knows what a was a content dist- delivery network. I think is the the initialism there. What that is, to the best of my understanding, it's something that's physically located closer, at least from a network perspective, located closer to where you are. That has a copy or a, as you say, a cache of the data, so that it can be retrieved with less you know latency and things like that. Is that roughly what it is, or can you go deeper? Yeah, that's a good description of it. Basically, what happens is you sign up with a content delivery network, and they do, they've got little data centers, points of presence all over hanging off the backbone of the internet. And that means they are much closer. So when I would go and request an image from some site that was using that CDN, the DNS lookup would actually tell it to go to the closest location it could. So it automatically directs me to a server basically, that is close to me. I send the request just like I normally would for this image. And the CDN says, wow, I don't have that yet. Go back to the origin, to my server, get it, and come here and store it here for you know as long as the policy says, and then give it back to the user. So from that point on, anytime anyone would access it there, they would just deliver it from their own server. And periodically, they would ask the origin server, hey, has this changed? Do I need to update it? There grew a, an entire industry around you know, how you deal with these URIs, how you update them, how you push, how you communicate that still exists today and is, is still being very, very widely used. But in a nutshell, that's, that's all it was. It's just like picking up the server and moving it closer in order to eliminate latency and bandwidth between and load on the server. There's a whole show in the, that one offhanded DNS remark you made. Yeah, you do a DNS lookup and it routes you to the closest one because that's how that works. <laughs> oh, if only it were that simple and it worked that well. Oh, boy. It doesn't? What? Oh, it exactly. doesn't? It's magic. <laughs> but but anyway, yeah, point taken. You know, CDNs help us with acceleration there. And that's still a big business today. Cloudflare is certainly in that business, and anybody can sign up for Cloudflare and take advantage of a CDN in that way. And of course, if you're a big boy, Akamai is in that space. 
and that that still applies whether it's a you know a legacy era web delivery or modern. You can certainly take advantage of a CDN. Lori, going back through your article, there were some other techniques that were mentioned. I'm curious if they're still applicable today. One of those is image optimization. Uh, what, what does that mean, and are we still doing that? Image optimization was. It's optimizing images, of course. I mean, it's right, self-explanatory. Job done. It's All over. Right. We got it. Woo! Um. <laughs> but taking an image that could be compressed and uh, you know compressing it more, these kind of things. Yeah. Generally speaking, yes, it's it's compressing the image, basically reducing its quality or its size or both in order to make it smaller and get it out there. In the old days, we would take one image. And we would say, we would just size it smaller on the web. We would actually use HTML tags that said, make this image 50 by 50. So it's the thumbnail, even though the actual image is like 1024 by 768. You still got all the bits. It was the browser that actually squished it down, which meant you were still transferring the entire size of that image. So when we decided image optimization was a good thing, that actual resizing took place on the server. So you could actually, in real time, I want it this size, and it would size it down, it would compress it, and then it would send it over. So you would get a size that was right for whatever you were trying to do that was also much smaller. And of course, right, the basics of, of networking apply, right? It's the number of bits that you have to transfer, the network speed, this all plays into the performance equation. So if you can make it smaller, it's probably going to transfer faster. Although that doesn't seem like we do that much today, because even in WordPress, you you were going to send the entire image, and it's going to be displayed in uh, compliance with the image tag and the uh, horizontal and vertical pixel specifications. And if you click through it, uh, assuming it's linked, you're going to see the whole image, and it's not going to be loaded again. It was already there. Right, right. There's still a lot of it done. Image optimization was, you know, I saw at least data looking at you know, our customer base was in 90% of the customers were using image optimization. So they were very heavily into it. But generally speaking, you know, it's not something that I, you know, necessarily am going to set up on my server that I'm using to serve up an app because I'm not getting paid to do that. So, and I don't like my users, so (laughs) (laughs) it can load slow, whatever. Pretty, pretty rough. (laughs) I I do notice that when I load images into, you know, modern frameworks like WordPress today, it also, it'll go ahead and build like a dozen different versions of an image. You know, when I, when I upload a 2000 pixel wide image, it'll make a thumbnail, a small thumbnail, a large, you know, it, it goes ahead and crunches all those and then automatically adjusts which image to present based on the responsiveness settings in that page or what page you load. So it sounds like there's middle ground too, where the server could just be intelligent enough that the code says, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to craft a dozen versions based on what you need. And then I'll handle that for you, which kind of sits, you know, it's not necessarily on the fly compression, but you're also not sending the entire full image as Ethan was alluding to a little earlier. Yeah, I think it's a happy middle ground, right? It's the, it's very similar to what we were doing with infrastructure, but, you know, we decided to be, you know, even smarter if we just did it first and just, yeah. right? And didn't, just do it now. Yeah. Instead of using resources later. So it's a middle ground. I think it still gets used. It's just shifting where in the process it's being used. What about overall data stream compression? Is that uh, still a technique that's used where you're using basically some flavor of a, a zip to compress payload as it's transferred across the wire? Wow. Well, now we're really going to jump like forward into, you know, other discussions. So I'll, I'll say, you know, it was, especially in those days when you were, you know, building out huge HTML, right? It's still useful for compressing that down and getting it across the wire quickly. It's less useful for things like images because they're usually already compressed pretty far down. It's not useful at all in under encrypted conditions, right? If something comes to you encrypted, compressing it's kind of, it doesn't make sense. So, you know, there's, there's alternating value in compression. It, it really depends on what you're doing, what kind of data you're sending. If you're under one packet, you're probably not going to get anything out of compressing it. So it's, it's kind of a waste of resources too. So back in the day, it was highly valuable. We went through 
a dozen different iterations of different types of compression. We went through, you know, Delta compression and this compression and browser and server, and it was crazy for a while what we did with compression trying to improve speeds. But today there's less focus, I think, on compression because there's so much else going on. And the data profile and the, the amount of data being transferred has changed so much from when it was necessary to today. It really struck me here. Technology comes and goes depending on its use case. So we were walking through the role of a content delivery network and image optimization and compression and so on. And some of those things are still applicable today. Some of those things really aren't or maybe don't fit, which brings up the point. Just because you did something a certain way five years ago doesn't mean it's the right technology to apply to the situation today. Every time you're at that point of building up a new app, you've got a new project, you've got a refresh, you've got a new app coming online, you've got to sit back and review what you're doing and why and not just say, oh, well, we used compression before, so we're going to check that box when I build out the load balancer virtual IP profile or whatever it is. That might not be the right thing to do. What were your takeaways, Chris? Yeah, somewhat similar. You know, like when we were talking about image optimization, I remember back in the day hitting performance snags where the web developers were uploading, you know, what we consider to be giant images at the time. They're multiple megabytes and such like that for thumbnails and small images. And they just trusted on the browser to render them in a smaller size on the page, which mean that, you know, when we look at a page, we see these small images and we're like, why is this page taking so long to load? You know, fast forward a few more years, I actually hit this snag where I saw someone uploading a large image into a website. I'm like, oh, don't do that. You need to figure it out yourself. And they're like, oh, no, the, the web page will do that for you. And all this magical new stuff is there. So in this case, I was the one slightly outdated on my technical knowledge and learned uh, from someone else. So just don't take everything for granted. Like you said, things change. Lori, we kind of talked through some older techniques and then how they still apply to the modern delivery of a, of a web-based application. But we've moved on, I mean, really far here in recent years, and there's been a couple of major protocol advances, HTTP2 and Speedy. Let's start with HTTP2. So from a standpoint of accelerating applications, can you talk about what HTTP2 brings to the party? All right. What it brings, you know, actually it would have been... <laughs> It would have been been smarter to start with Speedy since HTTP2 is based on Speedy. Well, if we need to start on Speedy, then then start with Speedy. Go there first. I think that might make sense because it's right. That was the first iteration. That was Google. We've got an idea. We're going to make this better. And it was, you know, kind of a, okay, here's HTTP1.x. And here's all of the bad things about it. Let's fix it. So it added things like header compression. Right. We are going to compress headers because if you've ever looked at a raw HTTP request, whether in your, you know, using Wireshark or you're just, you know, dumping it out somewhere and you look at it, there's a lot of headers, right? You got to tell people what the host is, what the URI is, what kind of languages you will accept, what your user agent is, your cookies, all the tracking IDs. You know, there's like 15 headers in here that are just huge. Thing is, they don't change usually from one request to another request. They usually stay about the same. So there was a lot of waste in here. So header compression was a huge part of Speedy. They also said, you know, you're, you're multiplexing. You're doing this with all these techniques that, you know, we've, we've done for years now. We're sharding domains. We're opening up multiple connections. Let's just make multiplexing part of the protocol. And the third thing that they did that is less well understood is the idea of pushing to the client. Once they had that single connection open, which is what Speedy allowed, they could actually push back over it. So the server would actually go, wow, you asked for this main page, and I already know that you need these three pieces of script and this image, so I'm just going to start pushing stuff to you. Yeah, that's kind of a point we didn't make earlier about that that idea of opening up all those connections. Connections are a finite resource on a server. You can't be opening up an infinite number of connections to a server. You run out of sockets, and so you've got to consolidate those connections at some point. And you know, ideally, one connection where you're loading all of the components over that single connection is, is a more efficient way to do that. You're not using up so many sockets on a, on a remote server. And right, and you, as you put it, Speedy has that functionality built right in. Yes. Yeah, that was built as part of the protocol, as well as, you know, kind of that requirement that you actually secure it. 
So Speedy came about about the same time that everyone was pushing for a more secure web, right? SSL everywhere. We're going to make everything secure. So that was kind of implied in Speedy. You got to do TLS, period. So that made, I think, adoption more difficult because it was still early enough that folks weren't ready to go to that requirement. And that's probably why we see that it's only got about eight and a half percent adoption rate for websites today. And it's it's mm. been around for a while. So, you know, it's not a very good adoption rate. And, and I know when I was reading, you know, what we we're going to talk about earlier, I was like, SPDY, Speedy. It took me a minute. So if you're listening and you're like, okay, you're trying to Google Speedy, it's SPDY. It looks like an acronym, but apparently it's not. It's a word that is four letters. So thank you, Google, for making something hard to Google. <laughs> the irony is, th- is thick. So th- shifting gears out of Speedy, S-P-D-Y, and into HTTP2, since that is kind of, the, it sounds like that's the next generation. What does that bring to the modernized application acceleration party? It brings a lot of speedy, but it uh, <laughs> it is based, right, when HTTP hadn't been updated in, what, 10 years, 15 years? I mean, it was, it was a long time. And, you know, when they said, well, maybe we should do something about it, you know, they looked at a lot of different things, and they, they finally kind of standardized on speedy as a basis, not necessarily because it had a great adoption rate, but because it was addressing so many of the things they wanted to address when they rewrote the the protocol. And they did rewrite it. HTTP2 is not compatible with any other version of HTTP at all, period. Oh, great. Yeah, not. Is that that the one where I heard in the news where it's like, oh, with with the HTTP2, I can now send like terabits per second over the web? Is it it like that crazy (laughs) optimized? Or... How, and how far along is this in adoption numbers? Like, am I using this now and I don't even know it? You Well, you could be, right? Especially if you're using Chrome and you're connecting to a, a website that supports HTTP2. So if you I Google something, there you go. Then, then you've probably used it and you didn't know it. Um, oh. About 13% of the top 10 million sites, according to, let's see, W3Techs, who's tracking this. So I just checked this morning to, to double check it. It's about 13% are okay. using HTTP2. So a fairly, um, a fairly reasonable chance that I'll stumble upon it uh, as long as I'm using a browser that supports the protocol. Yes, yes. You probably, you wouldn't know it. You have really no choice, right? But still, I mean, <laughs> the, you just get served what, what you get served. Your browser does all of that kind of talking for you and, and it actually does that negotiation. HTTP2 will fall back, most web servers will fall back to Speedy. And if your browser doesn't support Speedy, it will fall back to HTTP1. So it's kind of a, uh, it's trying to be a graceful degradation between the three protocols, but it definitely wants HTTP2 first for those sites that support it. And, you know, as an adoption rate, it seems kind of low, but it's only three years old and it's still way ahead of IPv6. And that's been available for like 15 years, you know? (laughs) So, Ooh, dig, dig. Ooh, dig, 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 yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so, Laura, you're talking about these as HTTP2 and Speedy and uh, regular HTTP1 as protocols that can all run simultaneously. And so it doesn't sound like they're mutually exclusive, and it's really just a it, – it's a client-server negotiation that happens up front with HTTP2 preferred – Speedy as the fallback, and then HTTP one is like, oh, fine. If I really have to use HTTP one, I will. Sort of a negotiation. Yes, yes. The question: Are they mutually exclusive? I thought. Well, I mean, yes, in the sense that they're not compatible, because HTTP two took Speedy, and then it's a binary payload now. So that's way different. It's it's asynchronous, which you know makes it completely different from early versions of HTTP. So they're not, you know, they're they're mutually exclusive, and then you can't use one with the other, um, unlike you know most networking protocols, right? We try to make sure, you know, I mean, IPv6 and IPv4 have some kind of you know mechanism for getting back and forth. We can translate at least between the two, but you know, but they do try to run simultaneously and do that degradation a lot, like we did WebSockets. WebSockets were also sort of that negotiation process. Use WebSockets if you can't, but otherwise go back to HTTP2 or HTTP1. 
All right, Laurie. So then with Speedy and HTTP2, we got some background here that we've been talking about. Let's describe a modern web transaction, one that uses, well, let's just pick HTTP2, one that's using HTTP2. Walk us through from that initial page request by a client through to an initial page render that I'm actually seeing it in my browser. What, what is actually happening behind the scenes? Wow. A lot of things. So, you know, assuming that I've just sent my first request, I said, hello. All right. Hello. The server says, the weird thing about HTTP2 is I can, I can send the server up to 100 individual different requests at the same time now. In the old days, we could only do one at a time. Now we can do 100. So I would send a request that says, I want a picture of a house and a car and a dog. And the server on the other side is like, oh, here's the car. Here's the house. I can then say, I'm interrupting, saying, oh, and I want a cat too. And it's going to finish and send me the dog back and the cat and the browser is going to be rendering those largely based on the DOM as it builds it. So the document object model that actually holds a, an HTML thing in the browser. So it's going to put those things in. Um, and as that logic dictates, it will start showing up. So the order can be completely out of order, right? You can interleave requests, responses back and forth. So it's a very messy protocol in that sense, right? It's not well-ordered. So it's, it's kind of hard to tell sometimes, you know, is this car the response to the dog request or is, you know, what, what is this thing happening? In a, in a straightforward model, you could make it look just like HTTP one. You could send a request and wait for a reply. You could send a request and wait for a reply and it would act the same way. On the wire, it's going to look completely different because it's all binary. The headers are compressed Right, things look very different, you know, under the covers now than they do with other versions of HTTP. Wow. Okay. So there's there's a lot there. <laughs> it's better with a picture. If I could draw you a picture, you would get it right away. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because back in the day, I I literally ran a few websites where I did most of the coding by hand, and it's just such a different animal now. I mean, I look at how a web page is delivered and the consideration of multiple different kinds of clients. You know, you got phones and tablets, you know, those sorts of operating systems and browsers, and then full-fledged desktops needing to be able to handle both of those. You've got the responsibility for rendering pushed uh, largely into the app or the browser, and so you've got different blocks of code living in different places and doing different things. Even something as straightforward as a CSS, you're trying to dig through it is mystifying to me compared to what I used to do 10 or 15 years ago when I was coding sites by hand because that was a manageable thing you could do with PHP and databases. Now it's just things have, have technology has advanced so far. It's almost like, ah, crap, I can't actually do this anymore. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Oh. Yeah, I yeah, I feel like that some days when I you know, when you first get back into it. So I hadn't coded anything. The last time I touched something it was a lamp stack. It was it was doing PHP and SQL, right? It was it was good old school stuff and I picked up jQuery and I pick up frameworks and express and node and I look at it I'm like, what the heck am I doing? There's like a fire hose. I have I have no idea how to use any of this and it's it's exciting and terrifying at the same time. Now, you mentioned encryption and uh, that more or less where we're headed on the web is all and everything's encrypted everywhere. Something actually at, uh, at Packet Pushes we're trying to get sorted out because uh, for us, encryption has been breaking our RSS feeds. And so transitioning has been difficult. Does pervasive encryption impact our ability to accelerate application delivery in any way? Uh, that depends on where it's where it's being applied, right, in the, in the infrastructure. I mean, we can't stop. The browsers have decided for us, right? Like HTTP2 is only going to be secure HTTP, period. So you can't use it without having a, a secured server on the backside. So we're going to have to use it if we're going to go that route. The question then becomes, am I doing end-to-end -end encryption? in that I'm going to encrypt from all the way from the application to the client. So I'm going to have the server actually do the encryption, or am I going to have, you know, pieces of the infrastructure terminate it, or are they going to do re-encryption, right? All of these decisions have an impact on the performance of the application. Some might say the security of the application as well, because if you're passing encrypted traffic through, you know, a, a security device, 
that is supposed to be inspecting the actual payload, like a web app firewall, you can't. It's all encrypted. It's gibberish. So you can't actually apply any of that security. It just, you might as well bypass it. So depending on, you know, where you're actually applying the, the encryption and who's responsible for it is going to change your performance and your security profile as you're trying to deliver those applications. <laughs> it just, it, it, it never ends. I mean, I guess the funny part to me about encryption <laughs> is, I mean, since it's now required you know, with HTTP2, a, a part of the logic behind that reasoning, as I recall, from the people writing the HTTP2 standards was efficiency. In other words, life's going to be faster if you're encrypting uh, and therefore, we're just going to require it. And do you does that ring true to you? Do you remember that as a as a point? I remember that it was actually in the spec before it was ratified, and it was made optional afterwards. But the browsers refused to support it unless unless it has encryption. So it's kind of a de facto imposed standard. Technically, you don't have to have encryption, but no browser will let you hook up to HTTP two. Without encryption. Without so, it, right. Yeah, exactly. You know, does it make it faster? That kind of confounds me. Anytime you do anything, right, it takes a certain number of cycles, and you are changing the data profile of what you're transferring, and that's going to impact latency on the wire, how fast it can be transferred. So it's going to have some measurable impact on performance. Yeah. Whether it's noticeable that was my logic too, is that how can they make the claim that it's going to be faster just because it's encrypted? Because that seems like the opposite of what would make things faster. So I, I got to dive back into that and see if I'm just making that up. I thought that was a, you know, a significant point there that they were making though back in the day. I think the argument, and I've, I read something that, that tried to make this claim that HTTP2 with, with, an, with encryption was faster than HTTP1. And, and it wasn't, it wasn't due to the encryption and that, well, the test was flawed. And I say that as someone who for a living, you know, did tests and made vendors cry. Um, but it, it's not that it's faster. It's that I think they thought that the improvements in the underlying protocol would offset and actually provide a positive improvement for performance. So it's not that encryption doesn't have an impact. It's that when it's countered by all of the improvements in the protocol, it's not really appreciable. I think that's the argument. So one last question, Laurie, as we wrap up this, uh, this discussion about modern web delivery and accelerating that. Um, if I'm an infrastructure engineer and I'm you know, under my care and feeding, I've got load balancers and I've got some security infrastructure, maybe I work with a CDN. Is any of my infrastructure especially impacted you know, if I've moved from the, the web 2.0 era into the modern API mobile era. Yes. <laughs> this leads, yes, more? drop mic. <laughs> That's it. Yes. Um, so especially there's, and I know you, you know, you, you think about containerization, you know, public cloud APIs in particular, API gateways are a new infrastructure component that are going to be increasingly necessary to handle APIs, especially if you're delivering them to the external world, right? External facing apps or users or partners. And these are, these are a lot like, they're load balancers plus access control. And they also do a little QoS, right, on the, the APIs. So these are new infrastructure components that are going to end up in the network somewhere probably under you know the responsibility of an infrastructure engineer because well it's in the network and you don't want devs messing with that you know some of the other things right load balancing is changing it's getting really interesting with the introduction of containerization because where you do load balancing and some security like uh, web app firewalls are necessarily moving they're kind of being sucked toward the container vortex in the back end it's just sucking them in and and they're sitting kind of at the edge of that so they're moving away you know some other things are becoming you know less less important less impactful primarily due to things like encryption right being sent back and forth it's blinding a lot of infrastructure so you know it's kind of a good time to step back and reevaluate what you're doing and where and you know how you're going to build those things to actually make sure that data path is is as clear and fast as possible 
Which sounds a whole lot like you're not just going to do this as an infrastructure engineer by yourself. You're going to have to do this with a clear understanding and via working with the development team of how this application is being delivered and where the different acceleration components need to be inserted as this infrastructure gets built out. Without that in tandem conversation, it doesn't sound like you could really be as effective at this as you need to be. Yeah, you can't because they're, you're going to be delivering multiple types of applications and they're all going to have different profile and security needs. I mean, just, it's kind of crazy and you have to understand, right, what they need. Is this one going to benefit from compression? We are really targeting, we, we want a single packet payload as much as possible as a developer. We don't know that's what we want, but that's what we want. And that's what we shoot for because it's going to be the fastest. So understanding the the data profile of what's being sent back and forth by these APIs and applications is going to allow the infrastructure engineer to understand, look, we don't need compression in the network and we, we don't need it on your server either. Turn it off. That's going to benefit double, right? Because you're not wasting cycles in two places. You know, security is the same thing. Where are we going to apply it? Who's doing the the uh, access control or the authentication or all of these different things? You have to understand what each of these these different apps needs and then figure out where it's best to place it because the developer doesn't have a picture of the full data path. They don't know all the different things that are in front of it that it has to pass through. And an infrastructure engineer has that view. So between the two, you should be able to figure out what you need and, and how that data is going to flow optimally from the user all the way back to the app and then you know, back out the door. Yep, an excellent point and one that we've made many times on, uh, on Data Knots. Really, one of the purposes of this show is to get all these different groups of people talking together. Lori, thanks for coming on the show today. And uh, if you're listening to the show, we're going to have a link to Lori's article on devcentral.f5.com about how apps and APIs are changing the app acceleration game. If you wanted to read more about this and, uh, and find some more jump-off points so you can dig into the topic more deeply. And then, uh, Lori, how can people follow you? I know you're on Twitter and you write. Go ahead, brag all about where people can find your stuff. Oh, my goodness. Um, so I'm on Twitter. It's at LMcVitty. So real simple there. I blog on you know both F5's corporate site and Dev Central, and they can all be found on devcentral.f5.com. And then it's like some really crazy user thing. Just search for my name. It'll come up, I'm sure. You're user 38. Yes, you, I'm user 38. I don't, I don't like that number <laughs> at all. <laughs> I'm going to lodge a complaint now. I'm user 38. Oh, thank you again, Lori, for coming on the show. And thanks to you for listening. That is it for today's edition of the Data Knots podcast. You can reach Ethan, that would be me, at ECBanks on Twitter. And I have a blog at EthanZBanks.com if you'd like to read about new media stuff. And uh, all my techie stuff is at PacketPushers.net. You can digitally probe Chris at Chris Wall on Twitter. And his blog is WallNetwork.com. And for more of our Data Knot shows about infrastructure engineering, nosedive down the rabbit hole, that is packetpushers.net. You will find the Data Knots talking about containers and conferences, certifications, PowerShell, moving to cloud, full-stack engineering, storage architecture, so much more. And until then, may your server lights blink, your client-side code be efficient, and your cables be cleanly managed. obviously a dude (laughs) (laughs) oh boy there's no possible way you could pull it off (laughs) all right uh, (laughs) boy